Hi, I'm Rick Samprin on the latest Bill Kelly Show podcast. Still no answers as to what caused a Ukrainian Airlines jet to crash in Iran, killing all 176 people aboard, including 63 Canadians. We get the latest from Keith Mackey, an aviation expert at Mackey International. Sounds like the idea of a new arena at Limeridge Mall is dead in the water, and that may be the last straw for the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs OHL hockey team. And U.S. President Donald Trump says America will not retaliate militarily for Iran's missile strikes on Iraqi bases housing U.S. troops on Tuesday. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Mourners will gather at more candlelight vigils across Canada today to grieve the 176 victims of a plane crash in Tehran, Iran. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has said that 138 of those 176 passengers had a connecting flight to Canada. They were going from Iran to Ukraine and were connecting, eventually, getting to Canada. The victims include newlyweds, families, academics, two McMaster University students among the 63 Canadians who were killed, both PhD students in the Faculty of Engineering. A newlywed couple, a family of four, a mom and her two daughters, bright students and dedicated faculty members. All had so much potential, so much life ahead of them. I just lost my sister, my niece and her husband, all three of them in one incident, one night, and all gone. And I wished, I wished she got to live. I wish it was me instead of her. It's a little tough to wrap our heads around it and what's going on, but we're all just trying to be there for each other. The airplane coming toward the ground and people on board realize that it's the end. I imagine them looking to each other's eyes with love and stay with each other forever. Voices of the Prime Minister, family and friends of the victims. Now we know that the plane went down early yesterday morning, several minutes after taking off from Iran's capital for reasons that are yet to be explained. Vigils, by the way, uh, scheduled for this evening on Parliament Hill, uh, in Toronto, in Halifax as well. Hundreds gathering across the country last night to mourn uh, in places like Toronto and Edmonton. Our first guest on the show today is Keith Mackey, an aviation expert at Mackey International, and he joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Keith, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Well, there's numerous scenarios that are being talked about on on what happened to this plane, uh, some suggesting mechanical failure, an electrical malfunction, uh, an Iranian rocket. What do you think happened? Well, whatever happened, happened very suddenly. We've got a very good radar track showing the aircraft climbing to 8,000 feet at a normal rate of climb and normal speed. In fact, if we go to the previous flight two days earlier, which was made in the same airplane, the initial radar tracks are almost identical, which would indicate that the aircraft was performing normally until it arrived at about 8,000 feet. At that point, the radar track just disappears. Now, my first impression is for the radar track to go away, the transponder had to go off. The airplane probably lost electrical power at that point, and that was likely where whatever event caused it to crash about 30 or 40 seconds later took place. We have some video shot by someone, looks like through a cell phone camera, We don't know exactly when the video begins in relation to its descent, but it shows an aircraft on fire descending. Uh, The video lasts for about 27 seconds, and you can see 
pieces coming off of whatever the object is, and then uh, explosion, and about two seconds later, the impact with the ground. The people shooting the video don't seem to be particularly excited. They're speaking in, I suppose, Farsi, and even when the aircraft impacts, there's no emotion or anything shown. So it makes me wonder, why was someone out there at 6 o'clock in the morning shooting video of an aircraft departing uh, Tehran? So this will all have to be part of the investigation. I understand there was no radio call made. Is that suspicious? Is it normal? Well, no, if you have a problem with an airplane, you need to solve the problem first and not yell for help. There's very little anybody on the ground can do to help. So the pilot's attention should be uh, focused on solving whatever the problem is. You mentioned uh, the video and part of the plane being on fire. Would that rule out a mechanical issue? Well, the first thing that we heard from the Iranians was that there was an engine fire, and that's what caused the accident. Well, (laughs) the airplane could fly till it runs out of fuel on one engine. That's why we have two of them on there. And even if the engine caught fire, there's fire bottles to put the fire out, and there would be no reason for that to have caused the crash. Clearly, they could have not known this with the information they had only a few minutes after the accident. They subsequently retracted that statement, but uh, it just shows how people are uh, sort of grasping at, at things here. Uh, Keith Mackey is an aviation expert at Mackey International and is joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Uh, There are some jurisdiction issues now. Iran says it has uh, the black boxes. It will not hand them over to the U.S. So what happens now? How do we get this information? Well, actually, the the owner of the aircraft owns, the, if you will, the black boxes. Uh, They contain a lot of information. Uh, we need to read that information to determine exactly what took place. Now, there's probably no place in Iran where there's anyone qualified to uh, uh, decode or read the information contained on the uh, data strips in these boxes. They don't have to give them to Boeing. They could go to any number of places. They could send them to Canada, or they could send them to France. So at, at any rate, if the investigation is to be properly conducted and it remains to be seen if it will, Uh, those need to be sent to some place where they can be read as a starter. By the the photos in the videos uh, in and around the crash site, it is a a wide display of materials. What can we glean from the crash site? Well, the aircraft impacted at a very high speed and uh, broke up almost completely. So we, uh, at first, it appeared that the crash site was very near the point where the aircraft lost power, but subsequently, with additional information, the crash site was some distance away from the uh, initial loss of power. So the aircraft uh, did fly for probably at least 30 seconds after whatever event took place that caused the uh, transponder to go off the air. Is there anything we can rule out at this point, or is everything on the table? Well, I think everything's on the table. Now, it's not a real good idea to fly airplanes with people on board through war zones. So uh, that has a a poor history in the past. We've got the shoot-down of the Malaysia Flight 17. 
Uh, the Iranians actually had an Airbus shot down by the U.S. Navy back in 1988. Uh, we, we can't rule that out. Let's look at what just happened. They fired all these missiles from Iran into Iraq at a U.S. base, and they were probably expecting some form of retaliation. So it would have been logical that the Iranians would have anti-aircraft capability set up at that point. So the question becomes, did they make a mistake? Did they shoot down the airplane in error, thinking it was an American airplane, a fighter perhaps, coming to attack uh, Tehran? Well, we may never know. Maybe that's why they don't want to give up the, uh, the flight data recorders. So that's all speculation, but it is something to consider. The uh, the uh, scenario where a rocket is involved, let's just put that to the side for a second. The plane's descent is rather abrupt. So if it's an electrical failure or a mechanical failure, the plane could have still glided for a while, but the, the descent indicates it was a rather steep tumble towards Earth. Exactly. It's not consistent with an engine failure or, or any kind of a normal mechanical failure. It would appear that to... Uh, it appears that they lost control of the aircraft, which would not be consistent with a normal mechanical failure. You know, all these things need to be explored by proper teams, a proper investigative staff that can do an honest uh, analysis of the information that's available to come up with a proper conclusion. Could a, a, a descent of that nature... Uh, be caused by a um, one of the tails to be lost or one of the flaps to be lost? Is it as easy as that? Well, there's nothing to indicate that that could have happened. Hmm. Uh, we do see some pieces coming off the airplane during the descent. There are lighted pieces coming off, which indicates that there's some kind of a fire or something associated with them. But uh, we don't know what they are. We don't know where they landed we don't know if they've even been found yet. So that would certainly be a clue. But one mistake we don't want to make is confusing this aircraft with the uh, 737 MAX, which had problems with what they call the MCAS system. And we've been talking about that for over a year now. This aircraft does not have that MCAS system. So an MCAS malfunction could not have caused this accident. Uh, the 737-800 is part of the what they call the NG, or New Generation Fleet. There's about 7,000 of them flying around the world, and they have a, an excellent uh, safety record. So there's nothing about the 737-800 that would uh, raise any eyebrows at this point. Uh, the aircraft is only three, three and a half years old, and the airline has a perfect safety record. They started in uh, 1992, right after the Soviet Union collapsed, and the Ukraine became an independent nation, and they've uh, uh, done an excellent job, apparently, to uh, fly for all those years with no, no accident history. How, I know there's politics involved here, but we don't have the black boxes, but how quickly can we get to a resolution? Generally, anything like this to get a final report out takes about a year. Now, uh, if the aircraft was shot down, 
the investigation would probably proceed along the lines of the ones of the uh, Malaysian Flight 17, which, just for your review, was a Boeing 777 that departed Amsterdam for Kuala Lumpur, and uh, Malaysian Airlines decided to fly it over the Ukraine, over the Crimea area, where the separatists were at war, and the aircraft got hit by a, a Russian missile. Now, Western investigators were allowed in to the investigation. The NTSB was involved. Boeing was involved. And when you look at the accident report, they knew the serial number of the missile that hit it. They could tell you to the rivet where the missile impacted the aircraft, the speed it was flying, the speed the aircraft was flying at that moment. In other words, they constructed it, reconstructed it perfectly. And if something like that happened in this case, and the proper qualified people were allowed access to the wreckage, I think they'd be able to determine something similar. So that remains to be seen. And we shall see. Keith, appreciate the time today. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Rick. Keith Mackey, uh, aviation expert at Mackey International, shedding some uh, light on uh, what is really a, an unbelievable tragedy with 176 victims uh, dying in uh, yesterday's plane crash in Iran. And hopefully some answers will come out sooner rather than later. Be nice to get the black boxes, that's for sure. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, it sounds like the idea of a new arena at Limeridge Mall is dead in the water. And that may be the last straw for the owner of the Hamilton Bulldogs OHL hockey team. Scott Radley is the host of the Scott Radley Show weeknights from 6 until 8 here on 900 CHML. He's also written about this topic numerous times in the Hamilton Spectator, including the latest story where the headline reads, Staff Report Urges City to Reject Idea of Limeridge Mall Arena. And Scott Radley joins us now. Good morning, Scott. Morning, Rick. How are you? I'm okay. Yourself? I'm great. I like, I like that idea of the wait times at uh at hospitals, you know who does that online is Disney, and you can get a fast pass. Maybe you can do that now from home. Get a fast pass to get into a <laughs> fast pass to the ER. Wow, that'd be yeah, that'd be a thing. I like that. You'd have to pay a premium, though. I'm sure. Well, maybe. Your story in the spec says that city councilors will be given a staff report next week that will likely spell the end of the Limeridge Arena project. Tell us about what's going to happen. Well, according to the councilors that I spoke to, of course, I didn't speak to all of them, but I spoke to a number of them. Uh, this is going to this report is not going to be rejected. This report will be accepted, and it will almost certainly then mean that they will say thank you to Michael Anlauer and say, but we're going to go ahead with our hopes and dreams and plans of figuring something out downtown. And that will well, when I talked to Michael Anlauer last night, it was the first time ever. I mean, I've dealt with him now for. 16 years since he's been involved with the Bulldogs. Uh, that was, this was the first time that he has ever, despite some previous frustrations, really said, time to start looking at other cities for a new home because this clearly is not working. And his frustration, which interestingly, Rick, we talked about this on my show last night. We opened the phone lines. His frustration echoed the frustration of a lot of people who called in. And that is the sense that there is a, with big projects, there is a feeling in the city that if it's not downtown, it's nowhere. And he says, look, I, I, and Lauer says, look, I, I brought forward some solutions. It may not have been the perfect thing, but it was something as a, as something to look at and it was shot down immediately. And so uh, he's frustrated. Um, and, and so that's, 
so now we're going to, I guess, be as a city trying to find a way to either fix up First Ontario Centre or build a new arena downtown. And I presume that since he had offered to pay $30 million, there'll be city council or the city staff will be trying to find other private partners who will be willing to put millions into a new arena, but we'll, we'll see how this plays. I do want to get to the options that Ann Lauer has and that the city has for First Ontario Centre in a couple of minutes, but I do want to ask you that. Uh, the report points to a number of factors that uh, are moving away from this Limeridge Mall idea, and those factors include uh, it's not part of the city's strategic plan. A 6,000-seat arena isn't big enough to attract major events. There's concerns uh, about public transit and uh, not enough hotel rooms up on the mountain, even though there's a new hotel and a couple of others that are going up. It appears that this idea re- really never had a chance. No, and at least one city councillor I talked to made that very clear, saying that like they, there was no thought in her mind that this uh, that, that this report was going to come back with a recommendation that the mountain would work, that, that, that it was a foregone conclusion. And uh, look, it, the biggest, the biggest um, misnomer or red herring or whatever you want to say for me when having this discussion, and I, you, can, you can think that an arena on the mountain is a great idea or a terrible idea, but one of the things that keeps getting brought up by some people is that it's a bad move, and we've seen it with other cities, to build an arena in the suburbs. We've seen how in Arizona, the, the, the rink in Glendale was in the middle of nowhere, and it hasn't worked. And with Ottawa, um, in Canada, it hasn't worked, and other things. Lime Ridge Mall is not suburbia. It's not the middle of nowhere. And, and that, that's one of those points that I think frustrates a lot of people when talking about this. You have a in fact, the report points out that the population density within a one-kilometer radius of Lime Ridge Mall is two and a half times greater than that of the population density within a one-kilometer radius of First Ontario Centre. There are far more people living, now working downtown for sure more, but living in that area. So it's not, the case in some cases is being made saying, well, we can't build it in the middle of nowhere. It's not the middle of nowhere. So there are parts of the report that, you know, it certainly does look like the the conclusion was there that this is not going to work on the mountain from from the start. That's, as they say, there are just parts in it that you go, really, you, you couldn't have made a case for the benefits of anything there? I, I don't know. It was that, That's the frustration I think a lot of people have, including a number of councillors. Uh, our guest is Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, weeknights here from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML, also a sports columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. You can check out his story online at thespec.com. Uh, we're talking about uh, the idea of a new arena at Lime Ridge Mall being uh, pretty much dead in the water. Um, you've spoken, as you mentioned, uh, to Bulldogs owner Michael Ann Lauer often over uh, the course of uh, this incarnation of the Bulldogs and the previous Bulldogs as well. And as you mentioned, he's offered to spend upwards of $30 million dollars on this new arena project, it would include a parking garage at the mall. Uh, now his options are, I guess, open. What do you think those options are? Well, I know that in the past, um, n- not regularly, but he has had a meeting, maybe more than one, but he has had a meeting with Marianne Mead Ward from Burlington, the mayor of Burlington. I think that'll be the first place that they go. Uh, Burlington, I know, is interested in having an arena, having an ability to have some facility 
to hold concerts to you know to build around. Uh, that doesn't mean that Burlington is going to throw millions and millions and millions of tax dollars into it. I don't. I have no idea. Um, we had Marianne Mead Ward on my show some months ago, and her comment at the time, as I recall, was, "I'm not going to talk about this at least until the day comes that things fall apart in Hamilton." because she didn't want to go and try poaching a team away from the neighboring city. Well, it appears things are falling apart in Hamilton, so I suspect the first stop is going to be there. Uh, there are other less likely places, I suppose. People have mentioned Brantford. That would require a r- massive rebuild of their current Civic Center or maybe a brand-new arena. Uh, and then last night on Twitter, there were loads of other options that people were throwing around that I would consider much, much, much longer shots, places like Cornwall and back to Belleville and other things like that. So uh, we'll see. But I, if, if, I had to, if I had to guess, if I had to bet, I would say that the number of the favorite by far right now would be figuring something out in Burlington. If, if that does become the option, uh, obviously it would take a few years to build the arena. Would, would Ann Lauer be okay with staying at First Ontario Centre for the time being? It's a good question. Um, because a lot of money has to go into that facility, regardless of whether he stays or not. Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I know that, um, and you probably remember this story, Terry Pekoski, my colleague, wrote this some time ago. There were, she wrote a story that there were contingency plans, because, you know, the, the ice making, the ice plant for COPS, or for First Ontario Centre, has always been in question. And there have been contingency plans that if that broke down, that I believe they were going to be playing in Brampton. Uh, no, I didn't mention Brampton as an op- as an option for moving, mostly because the OHL team that was in Brampton for a while was just a, a colossal failure, frankly. So it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to go back there. But as a as a way station for a year for a season, um, perhaps. I mean, like it depends on how serious Ann Lauer is about moving and how quickly he would be able to make something happen. I mean, if they could. If they could, uh, let's say they sat down with Burlington and in the next five months came to some sort of agreement, uh, or four months before the end of the season, and came up with something so that before the end of 2020, some construction was starting. That may be wildly fast. I have no idea. I'm not in the construction business. But in two years, so you may end up having to play a season and a half or two seasons somewhere else, whether it's here or there. Here's the thing. Um, I don't get the sense that Hamilton, even if he was going to leave, I don't get the sense that they're going to kick him out because why do they not want the rent money for a building that would otherwise be largely sitting empty? So I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but there are options for sure. The other part of this is if Ann Lauer takes the Bulldogs to Burlington or, or wherever else, uh, in your story you also have a quote from Councillor John Paul Danko who suggests that, hey, we can just get another OHL or AHL team to replace the Bulldogs. It, uh, I, I'm not sure what the, uh, you know, the tone that he used, but it seems rather flippant because I don't think it's that easy. I don't think it's that easy. Uh, and the other part is there are some question, uh, depending, as I understand it, depending on where Michael Ann Lauer were to land with this team, if he were to take it somewhere else, if he remained in the vicinity, you know, you know how we've always had the discussion, Rick, about could Hamilton get an NHL team? And the question was always, yeah, but the Leafs have territorial rights or the Sabres have territorial rights here. 
which is what blocked us. Well, the same exists in both those leagues. You can't uh, – Michael Anlauer right now with his Bulldogs team in Hamilton, unless he agreed to it, someone else couldn't somehow acquire an OHL team and plop it in Burlington and say, there you go, fine, done, because they do have protected zones, to my understanding. So uh, if he were to move it to Burlington or if he were to move it to probably Brantford, uh, that would probably still – protect the area and so you would have to get permission from him to bring another team here within that league i don't know if it's i don't think it's exclusive to all hockey so uh it's it can be slightly more complicated than that and plus uh, there's 20 ohl teams they don't go up for sale all that often and there's geez i don't even know how many ahl teams there are now they keep growing that league i think it's 31 or 32 at this point but uh they also, because now those teams are almost all, or at least the majority, are owned by the NHL teams, because they're all the farm teams of the NHL, and most of the NHL teams are trying to keep their franchises close to the big club, like the Marlies with the Leafs now. It's easy to send players up, or bring players up and send them down. Uh, you know, it's, it's not as easy as it once was to start moving teams around. New report going to City uh, Council next week shows that uh, the new arena idea at Limebridge Mall is pretty much dead in the water. We're chatting with Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 till 8 on 900 CHML, also sports columnist with the Hamilton Spectator. Uh, A report by Ernst & Young not too long ago says that uh, whether it's a refurbished First Ontario Centre or uh, an entirely new hockey arena downtown, it needs an anchor tenant. Um, so if the Bulldogs leave, uh, I mean, that's a big question mark there. It is, and there's something else that's in that report that is interesting, because Twitter was going nuts last night, Facebook was going nuts. There was so much discussion about this. And one of the other things that seem to be, seems to be getting confused a little bit is a number of people are saying, look, we don't need to be spending $100 million on an OHL team. And, uh, you know, that's, that is a, uh, that's a point that's going to resonate with a lot of people. I think a lot of people would say, that's yeah, sure, and especially if it's private owner. Here's the thing, though. That Ernst & Young report says we're going to have to pay something like 70 or $80 million just to keep First Ontario Centre at a reasonable level, just to keep it up. So you're going to spend 70 or $80 million anyway to keep an arena in the downtown. So, so it's not a question of paying $100 million or nothing. And, and that's been a bit of a, a misnomer or a misunderstanding, I think, that some people are having about this. In all likelihood, uh, if Michael Anlauer is moving his team, uh, regardless of where it is, how soon do you think that happens? Again, I, I, would, I think it could be moved reasonably quickly. It's a question of where do you play and how quickly can you get an arena built. So I don't really have an answer for that. But at the the end of my column, I said to him, where do you think the Bulldogs will be in three years? And he said, ask me in a couple months. That may be an indication of how fast he thinks he can arrange something. I don't know. Burlington Bulldogs does roll off the tongue pretty nicely, though. I bet people in Burlington would think so. I'm not (laughs) sure that everybody who's a fan here is going to love the idea. And, Rick, this just... It was kind of predictable, I think, in a sense, because with so many things swirling around council right now and swirling around the city with the LRT situation and with the sewer situation and everything else, I think it was predictable in a sense that this was going to go a bit to the back burner. 
And I don't think that Michael Landlauer, after all these years of trying to get something done, was eager to sit around and wait too long for them to get to him eventually when everything else was resolved. And so this is, this is a story that um, you, could, you could see coming and you could predict, I think, that probably the ending was not going to be the way he wanted and probably will not be the way the ending the way a lot of people who are fans or who just like the idea of having a team in this city would like. If the team goes somewhere else, even if it is Burlington, how big of a loss is it for Hamilton? The team is a part of that. The bigger question is going to be, let's say they go to Burlington. Let's say Burlington City Council decides to jump in and give some millions of dollars to build a new 7,000 or 8,000 seat arena. And let's say Ann Lauer throws in her 30, throws in his 30, or maybe even he goes bigger. Maybe, maybe he says, you know what? We're going to start over here. I'll go 40 or 50. I don't know. Now they get this arena and they will be competing for concerts and competing for shows with their arena. That's probably a better size for a lot of these shows. That's more modern. That's closer to Toronto. That's maybe on the go line. And Hamilton's now competing for those same shows. So when you say what sort of impact is this going to have, it's probably more than the hockey thing. We're going to potentially now be losing a hockey team and maybe having a bunch of the things that we've seen at facilities here in Hamilton go down the road. Then I'm interested to know from people if their position changes on whether or not they think this is good to just let him walk out the door and take the arena or not. Well, we'll uh, keep tabs on this situation, that's for sure. I mean, whenever you lose, uh, and again, they're not gone yet, but whenever you lose a, a franchise, a hockey team, whatnot, you lose, I think, a piece of the community, a fabric of the community, and the Bulldogs have been here for a long, long time. We did have uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward in studio on Monday, and uh, you know she was talking about the potential development opportunities at the Burlington GO station, so that could be a landing spot for the Bulldogs. Scott, uh, always appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Anytime, Rick. Scott Radley is the host of The Scott Radley Show, weeknights 6 until 8 here on 900 CHML, and also columnist with The Hamilton Spectator. You can check out his story online at thespec.com. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The United States and Iran stepping back from the brink of possible war yesterday. U.S. President Donald Trump signaling he would not retaliate militarily for Iran's missile strikes on Iraqi bases housing American troops uh, back on Tuesday night. Now, speaking from the White House yesterday, and you heard it here on yesterday's show, uh, Trump's words helped de-escalate the crisis, which spiraled after he authorized the targeted killing last week of Iran's top general, Qasem Soleimani, and uh, Iran responded by firing more than a dozen missiles at two installations in Iraq. Iran appears to be standing down which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost because of the precautions taken, the dispersal of forces, and an early warning system that worked very well. The United States will immediately impose additional punishing economic sanctions on the Iranian regime. These powerful sanctions will remain 
until Iran changes its behavior. Aaron Ettinger is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at uh, Carleton University, uh, specializing in international relations and U.S. foreign policy, and joins us now. Aaron, good morning. Good morning. I want to dissect some of the things that President Trump said yesterday, first of which, um, Iran appears to be standing down. Do we expect any more, quote-unquote, harsh retaliation from Iran? Uh, Yes and no. Uh, And that's very interesting because uh, Iran is unlikely to be satisfied with the nature of its retaliation the other day. Iran did a very good job in saving face by launching a relatively mild assault on those on those military installations in Iraq but I'm fairly certain that Iran is biding its time thinking about how it can pursue further uh, destabilizing actions against the United States but the thing is it's not going to confront the United States directly in in a, in a military way that would spell certain doom for Iranian initiatives what Iran will likely do is do something more asymmetrical right cyber attacks attacks on uh, shipping lanes in the Straits of Hormuz, other destabilizing measures that are uh, more difficult to, for the United States to push back against in turn. Was Tuesday night's uh, rocket attack by Iran just uh, basically a message to its citizens to say, hey, we did something, we fired some some rockets, all right, we didn't hit anybody, uh, we didn't kill anybody, but we sent them a message? Yes, it was. I mean, it was. this was all about signaling, ultimately. I don't think anybody expected the United States and Iran to engage in a full-on military confrontation. But what Iran was interested in doing was, one, retaliating in order to save face for the assassination of Soleimani, who is a major national figure in that country, and his assassination and really inflamed nationalist tensions. Uh, in Iran. So they had to do something in order to satisfy the domestic audiences and to send a signal internationally that Iran will not be trifled with. So what they did was select very carefully relatively insignificant targets, right, hitting the outer edge of the Iraqi side of a military installation. Uh, But in doing so, they demonstrated their capacities, their capabilities to fire very advanced rockets and do so very precisely. And that sends a signal to the United States and to Iraq and to anybody else who is watching that Iran has military capabilities that shouldn't be trifled with. Would that have been a surprise to United States military officials? Uh, To U.S. military officials, I'm sure they have a very good understanding of what Iranian capabilities are. Uh, This was much more about political signaling. Right, signaling to world leaders, to anybody who is watching that Iran has these capabilities and can hit targets very, very precisely at a great distance. The intelligence community likely already knows this. Now we all know this. Uh, another thing that President Trump said yesterday in his address to the nation was that uh, the United States will implement punishing economic sanctions. We know that there are already some sanctions in place, so what more can America do in this regard? Well, that's a great question, and I'm not entirely sure they can do a whole lot more. I mean, Iran has been living with punishing U.S. sanctions since uh, 1979, 1980, right? So this is not really big news for Iran. Now, it does matter because these economic sanctions have largely stopped Iran's economy from growing in any meaningful way over the last 40 years. Uh, But for the purposes of its geopolitical conflict with the United States, it's really more of the same. Uh, these punishing economic sanctions haven't really moved Iran off of its kind of anti-American, 
geopolitical stance in the Middle East over the last couple of decades. So I'm not entirely sure it's going to change Iran's behavior. What it does do is give the Trump administration some leverage in any future negotiations, right? Because any sanctions you put on now can be taken off later in exchange for some concessions on Iran's part. We're chatting with Aaron Ettinger, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Carleton University here on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill this week. Another thing that Trump referred to was NATO. He's asking for NATO to get more involved in the Middle East. What do you make of this? And we all know that Canada is implicated in that as well. Oh, my goodness. You know, if I was sitting there at NATO headquarters, I'd be thinking, you've got to be kidding me, right? Uh, NATO has already is already deeply involved in Iraq and has been for many years now as part of a multinational training force. Uh, but NATO doesn't want to get involved any deeper into a shooting conflict with Iran uh, for any number of reasons. One, shooting conflicts have not gone so well for NATO over the past 20 years, i.e. Afghanistan. Uh, and furthermore, the individual countries within NATO, especially the, play, those playing leadership roles like Canada, uh, have no particular appetite for getting involved any deeper in a conflict like this. I mean, Canada, yes, as you said, is implicated in this because, one, it has about 500 troops in Iraq right now as part of the multinational training force, and two, it is leading that. Uh, however, I cannot imagine there's any domestic appetite for getting involved into a shooting conflict alongside the United States against Iran right now. So I have a feeling what uh, NATO is trying to do right now and what the individual leaders within NATO are trying to do right now is figure out some way of dampening the attitudes, right? Some way of offering Trump some sort of multinational solution that permits him to save face, because that's very important for Donald Trump, and that doesn't compromise the integrity of the mission in Iraq itself. Does Trump's statement regarding NATO go back to his comment that he wants all NATO nations to spend at least 2% of their GDP on military whatever, whether it's equipment, weapons, uh, troops, whatnot, and that additional spend expenditure will be sent to the Middle East or be targeted at the Middle East? Yeah, I mean, this, it is part of his broader preoccupation with this kind of spending, this 2% threshold. You know, for three or four years now, Trump has made it a point of saying that NATO countries are not paying, right? They're not spending, they're not paying their fair share in order to uh, earn America's protection. So, you know, his ire is not all that surprising here. However, you know, 2% spending threshold doesn't mean a whole lot unless your NATO allies actually want to get involved in a shooting conflict. Uh, but that's kind of a very simplistic way of looking at the politics of the Middle East and NATO's involvement in the Middle East. I mean, right now, NATO countries do have a significant number of troops on the ground in Iraq contributing to the reconstruction of that country and the retraining of its military, trying to stand up the Iraqi forces. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how much more NATO can be expected to do, barring some sort of serious attack on uh, a NATO country that invokes uh, that invokes the mutual defense clause, there's not going to be much of an attitude, uh, not, not much of an appetite for NATO countries to get involved any deeper. However, they can play a role in stabilizing things behind the lines, so to speak. Right? Permit Donald Trump to do his bellicose foreign policy as he does, all the while the uh, countries like Canada, Germany, and beyond 
can provide troops in order to train Iraqi soldiers and alleviate the need for Donald Trump to send troops to do that. Aaron Ettinger is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Bill. Another thing, and uh, one of the highlights I thought of uh, President Trump's speech yesterday was, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said, we have the biggest and best military in the world, but we don't want to use it. Is this a case of America flexing its muscles, but not really throwing a punch? Oh, yeah. This is, I mean, this is absolutely Donald Trump flexing on everybody else. Everybody knows that the United States has the strongest military in the world. Who would deny that? Who would deny that the United States has the ability to strike anywhere and hit anywhere in the world? That's, that's a given in world politics. Uh, but it does play well to his own sense of posturing on the world stage by flexing, by signaling to everybody else that the United States is very, very powerful. His choice of words saying that we don't always have to use it is very, very interesting. It's sort of this sort of armed diplomacy, as we call it, in uh, in academic international relations. It's reminding everybody that we have that the United States has the ability to back up its diplom- its diplomacy with force. It also plays very well to his instincts as a strongman styled leader, and it plays to some portions of the Republican base that are very hawkish about American intentions in world affairs. Trump also called on other nations to step away from the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran. What's the likelihood of that, and what if that doesn't happen? Uh, I have a feeling that that 2015 nuclear deal is dead. The United States under Trump has backed away from it. Iran said the other day that it is going to back away from uh, that nuclear deal. Europe and Russia, the other members of the P5 plus 1, uh, are interested in sustaining this deal because it is uh, because it has potential, right? It had potential to constrain Iran's nuclear program. So there's a flurry of activity going on right now uh, across Europe and Moscow and the uh, state cap and the capitals there to somehow salvage portions of this. But uh, the two principal players are not interested in playing this game anymore. Uh, and so I have a feeling that, that this Iran nuclear deal is a dead letter. So what are some of the things we're going to see over the next coming days, weeks, or even months? Well, that's an absolutely fascinating question right now. Uh, I don't think we're going to see a wider shooting war between the United States and Iran. Uh, That's one. Uh, The JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, is probably dead. What we are going to see likely over the next couple of weeks and months is this kind of turning turning. Iraqi and Iranian nationalism, right? The Iranians are really upset over the assassination of Soleimani. We've seen what happened at his funeral over the last couple of days. Uh, Iraq in uh, Baghdad and on the streets, they're upset about uh, America's presence in Iraq. Uh, More broadly, we have to look to the NATO training mission and the future therein. Step back even more broadly, as I look at my map on my wall here, we've got to think about who else is watching. Right? Russia is watching what is going on. North Korea is watching what's going on. Right? Russia is looking to expand its influence across the Middle East in order to undermine American credibility and perhaps even play a sort of power brokerage role. North Korea is looking at all this to see how the United States responds to uh, a country with nuclear ambitions 
right? What is the red line that North Korea should not cross, lest it incur American uh, retaliation? Uh, China is happy to see the United States continue to be bogged down across the Middle East as China continues to rise. And then there's us, and then there's Canada. Like, what are we supposed to do as you know, a, a, a smaller member of the NATO alliance with interests across the Middle East in a time that's particularly complicated for Canada in particular, both as the leader of the multinational training mission and in response to the downed airliner uh, the other day? Canada has a very, very tricky role to play, and our new foreign minister uh, is facing the first major kind of challenge of his tenure in that office. I know uh, when the uh, missile strikes happened and Soleimani was killed uh, 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 over the weekend, you know, Twitter was a flurry with uh, the hashtag World War Three. Are, are, are we somewhat close to that? No, we are not somewhat close to that. We are nowhere near that. You can, you know, put the canned beans back on the shelf in your kitchen and out of your bunker. <laughs> Do not worry. Right? And you can quote me on that one. Uh, I don't think we're nearing any sort of tipping point where things spin out of control and we enter into World War III. Nobody around the world right now has any desire to deepen this any further. Uh, but that doesn't mean we should be incautious. Right? That doesn't mean that we should not pursue diplomacy at the most careful kind of pacing here. Uh, so we can all stand down a little bit. We can all cool off a little bit. We're not going to war. Nobody's getting drafted. That's it's okay. It's <laughs> probably the best news of all. Aaron, yeah. uh, thanks a lot for the time. Great chat today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Aaron Ettinger is an assistant professor, Department of Political Science at Carleton University, offering some insight as to what has happened and what might happen in the next uh, days, weeks, and months from now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.